Books, The Final Frontier. These are the discussions of the podcast Sword and Laser, its continuing mission to explore strange new science fiction and fantasy novels, to seek out new characters and new beverages, to boldly read where no one has read before. Go to patreon.com slash sword and laser to join the mission. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans just like you. And today is is an amalgam episode, both both interview and regular episode and book of the month discussion. But before we get to all of that, Veronica, we're almost into March. Yes, March Madness is finally upon us once again. And that means that you can nominate books for the tournament uh, that we're going to read next month in our Goodreads forum until 8 p.m. Eastern. February 25th. So we'll have links to the Goodreads threads in particular that are going to lead you there so you can nominate science fiction, you can nominate fantasy. We'll do 16 of each at the start, and then we'll whittle that down to one March Madness winner. We'll have our bracket selection special coming up February 27th. Are we doing sports voice? Is that what I'm, is that what I'm doing accidentally? We'll, we'll definitely end up doing it. I don't think we can stop ourselves. Sports, uh, sports, sports, sports. <laughs> books, books, books. <laughs> battling it out. Uh, to that's the good. That's death. <laughs> no, is that too much? Don't don't kill your books. Okay. Read them right. or pass them along. Uh, hey, we're very excited today because, uh, as you know, our book this month is Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cole. And we're very happy to have Hugo Award winning author and professional puppeteer Mary Robinette Cole with us. Mary Robinette, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, longtime uh, listeners and viewers of the show uh, may remember that she joined us for a video episode back in the old school days of the Sword and Laser video show. Um, so we'll put that up in the blog post as well. That was so much fun to do, by the way. It was like one of our... Getting to do that was just so much fun. We had a space tavern. It's a, and there was a dragon on the wall. It was fantastic. Mm, we did have That glam. was almost five years ago now. <gasps> oh, Wow. I mean, actually, it is five years. March 13th, 2014 is when that episode posted, and we recorded it before that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Golly gee. <laughs> All right. Well, that is, uh, let's not talk about how much that uh, feels like that has <laughs> aged uh, this podcast, and uh, uh, definitely not okay. myself. <laughs> I just had my 50th birthday on Friday, so. Uh, another trip around the moon. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Around the yes, sun. Yes, you leveled up, I saw. Congratulations. Yes, yes. This is awkward because I just made an inappropriate uh, astronomy uh, uh, <laughs> statement um, for this podcast. I said another trip around the moon. We travel around the sun, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I thought that that was an astronaut reference. E okay, yes. Yes, it definitely was that. Thank you for saving me <laughs> from the inevitable well actually. <laughs> Not to get too sidetracked, uh, but I, I have recently decided to just start calling myself 50 so that when I turn 50 next year, I'm used to it. Uh, and and so I was very pleased to see the yarn and whiskey that you were treating yourself to. Oh, yeah. It's given me ideas for oh, next yeah. year. I bought myself presents. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, as we mentioned, uh, we are reading The Calculating Stars uh, for our book pick this month. Tom and I already finished it. We both loved it, which is why it's not awkward that we're having you on the show during the month of the recording. We finished, I finished The Calculating Stars, The Faded Sky, and Lady Astronaut of Mars, and I have all the short stories on my phone Dang. ready to finish soon. Wow. All That's, right, fanboy. Uh, wow, that is quite the compliment there. Obviously, I hate them. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
There, there are people who uh, read all of something in order to complain about it. So, you know, that could be a thing. Yes. No, that is absolutely not the uh, not the case in the situation. Uh, I absolutely adored them. Uh, starting with The Lady Astronaut of Mars, I read that mm-hmm. in a pub uh, while having dinner, and it about made me break down and cry uh, in a good way. Uh, and, you know, and <laughs> I was getting a little, the, the bartender was looking at me like, you all right, buddy? I'm like, yes, yes, just a really good story. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then the, the Calculating Stars was so fun because it takes you back to the beginning of this woman's life, this amazing character's life. Uh, and you see, you know, little seeds of what you're going to see in that later story. So impressive in so many ways, not just because of that interconnectedness and believability, but, uh, you have that you deal with, uh, issues of being Jewish. You deal with issues of being African-American, being female, uh, communist suppression, uh, climate change, engineering, flight mechanics. I'm assuming you're not all of those things, but you pull them off so well. I'm, I am female. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's about it. Um, yeah, I had a lot of help on these books, a lot, a lot of help. So the thing that I say is, you know, anything that is right in the book is the result of someone else's labor. Mm -hmm. Um, and everything that is wrong is all me. But yeah, I I was really impressed by this as well. And I think that the the level of detail that you go into and you kind of get into this at the um what what do you call the section at the end of a book? Um so I have I mean there's the acknowledgments where I talk about specifically who helped me with what, but mm-hmm. then I I add in uh and about the history. It's called the af- I guess the afterword. The afterword okay. is the formal term for that section of the book. Excellent. Well, I was I was reading that and I was just really, really stunned by just the number of people that you brought in to to help fill in the the parts that might be a little more difficult um, around the the science and the physics and everything in between. And I just thought I was really impressed by that. I, I thought it was extremely well researched and uh, it, it was so believable that that Elma was a genius, essentially, um, because it was written that way. I basically treated math like a magic system. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I joke sometimes that the uh, the Glamorous Histories, which is my Jane Austen with magic books, are really fantasy. They're actually science fiction disguised as fantasy mm-hmm. um, because they're manipulating electromagnetic waveforms. That's how they do the magic. And uh, The Calculating Stars is really fantasy that is masquerading as science fiction because they are I'm like Elma's ability with numbers is I just, I'm like, and then she, she mathed at it. <laughs> <laughs> tech, tech, tech. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was impressed by uh, some of the descriptions though, that I have heard from other people who are very adept at math uh, of, of, of seeing math as, as a whole of being able to ima- think of the numbers as things, not, do the math the way I would have to do it. So I have also read descriptions of that. Um, and that, that fugue state that she goes into is something that I experience in other forms. Like I was an art major Mm. in college and there are times when you, you stop thinking about the process specifically when I'm designing a puppet, I, I often hold the shape of the thing that I'm going to make in my head um, when I'm talking about story, I, there's a tactile sensation to it. So I, I extrapolated from those sensations and 
gave that to Elma, that, that sensation of knowing and owning a subject. Uh, but the subject mm-hmm. itself, I am, uh, I am unfortunately one of those people who uh, add instead of subtract, multiply instead of divide. Um, I've had an informal armchair diagnosis from a learning disability specialist on an airplane. So of course it's completely accurate. Um, right. <laughs> that, that if I troubled to go in and, and go through formal diagnosis that I, I have what sounds like textbook dyscalculia, uh, but which I didn't even know was a hmm. thing. Um, so that's part of why I'm like, it's just a magic system. People do numbers and it's fancy things happen. Yeah, that's. I didn't know that was a thing either. I'm going to have to look into that for myself. Um, but we had a number of questions from our audience that I wanted to make sure we got to as well. Um, mm. Elizabeth said, uh, and this is a quote from her, I was really struck by how much Elma sounds like MRK, especially the, oh, right, socially ingrained racism, I need to under overcome comments. There's been a lot of discussion around this on writing excuses, and Elma's reaction and approach feels like it came straight from your comments and observations. How much of this was a deliberate choice? It is 100% deliberate. All of Elma's growth as a character uh, is taken directly from uh, my growth as a person. Um, I, I owe so much to people who have had long, uh, conversations with me, uh, have done the heavy emotional lifting. Um, Kay Tempest Bradford, Nikki Kendall, uh, uh, N.K. Jemison. Uh, these are people who have, have taken time to have conversations that they didn't need to have. Um, and, uh, and so I basically gifted Elma with, with my missteps. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting, um, how many people have read the books and, and simultaneously say, no, 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 don't do that thing. Because they can see it. That what they say is they can see it when she's doing it. And then they recognize that, oh, I do that thing. So it's been, it's, mm. it's an awkward thing, but yeah, no, that those are all things that I have said at some point or some variation thereof. Well, and and what I found satisfying about the story, and this is this is a side note to what is a a, a strong and enjoyable science fiction, you know, or fantasy masquerading a science fiction story, was while Elma does the thing, the other characters around her do it mm-hmm. to her as well, uh, and other characters do it mm-hmm. to each other as well, and some are ham fisted things that we all recognize, like yeah, of course, and others are more subtle that get pointed out as you may not realize it, but you're doing the thing. Yeah, which is, and this is the the thing. It took me a long time to understand that we all exist on uh, multiple axes of power. So there's always an area in which you are actually at the dominant end of a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But then there are other areas where you are totally at the subordinate end. And when you're interacting with someone, you can't always tell which areas they are dominant and subordinate in uh, just, just based on the interaction. Um, like you can talk to someone. My mother is a great example of this. Um, she's white, which is dominant end of the spectrum. Um, she's a woman, which is farther down on the, the gender spectrum there. Uh, but she grew up. Uh, coming from a, a a poor family, and made a very conscious decision to change class. So when you're interacting with her, and Elma's mother is actually based on my mother, um, mm. when you're interacting with her, 
it feels like you're talking to old Southern money, but those are all learned things. And she has some things, the um, what will people think was a common refrain mm. for me growing up. And it, it comes from that background that that's just there all the time. That that fear that she'll be caught and found out, uh, that that concern about status and, and that someone will realize that she's a fraud and that she doesn't belong there uh, is, is just there all the time, but you, you wouldn't know that when you meet her. Yeah. That is something I that resonated with me as well, because, uh, my dad came from, uh, a, a, a more mm. earthy stock, uh, oil workers and farmers, uh, in Southern Illinois. My mother came from Southside St. Louis, which was sort of a, what would people yeah. think culture of Catholic German Catholic, Irish Catholic, uh, who were trying as a society to do what your mother was doing to, to look better than the history of their families had been. Yeah. It's not an easy thing that, that desire to, um, to fit in is something that, you know, because we are, we're essentially a herd creature. So we have this desire to fit in, but that desire to fit in can cause us to assimilate in ways that, that are harmful and suppress aspects of self. Yeah. And and so that was one of the things that I was, you know, was thinking about when I was working on the books was the different ways that we uh we we harm ourselves in our efforts to fit in, in our efforts to be part of a group and and we make the group poorer because of doing that too, I think. But what I, I think you do show that is very positive is even if you are unintentionally doing the thing because you're worried about what would people think perhaps or 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 some other blind spot or motivation, being aware of it mm-hmm. is the key. No matter who you are, what spectrum you are. And I love the way you said put it in in the perspective of everyone's on on some end of a power uh continuum and you're not always on the same one depending right. on who you're around. That that's an excellent way to think of it. Uh and 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 I think that gets past a lot of a lot of difficulties in having these conversations is, you know, in 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 Christian terms, for people who are Christians, it's mm-hmm. we're all yeah. sinners, right? <laughs> and 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 that if that's a familiar way of thinking about it, I I think that's that's kind of it. Is like it's not bad that you did the thing; it's bad if you don't care mm-hmm. or you don't want to stop or you don't want to. Mm-hmm. If you're not why. listening, yeah, right. Like I mean, we all make mistakes. Everybody makes a mistake, but the thing that changes it from being. Uh, a mistake to being a failure, I think, is when we do not learn from it, when we double down, when we, the first time is is an accident, right? And then once someone points it out to you, if you do it again, then you're doing it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Or or if you did it again by accident, so I suppose that's possible, but yeah. <laughs> you really should it's, try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people, it takes multiple times for someone mm-hmm. to learn something, but it is still... If you are then also blaming other people for mm-hmm. the mistake, it's like you can't say that no yeah, one told you. Being defensive. Um, I, I yeah, exactly. I, I want to give credit to the uh, to that lens about the the spectrum and the the multiple axes to um, the book uh, "Why Are All the Black Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria," uh, which is a fantastic uh, sociology book that I think is well worth reading for multiple reasons, but especially if, if you've got listeners who are writers, it, it's just wonderful for understanding um, more about how societies and cultures work and why you do sometimes get this, this clumping that will happen. 
That's a great transition from talking about drawing on your personal experience to talking about the research we were mentioning earlier. We have a load of people interested in that. Mark was curious regarding Milltown uh, because it is a real thing and wanted to know how much research of pharmaceutical history you did. Trike wanted to know how much research of locations like Kansas you did. <laughs> Terp Kristen, who is an aerospace engineer, says, I'm curious how many female engineers and astronauts you interviewed. She has a lot of passages way too on the nose to be unresearched down to actual situations I've been in. For example, my idea or comment being blown off but applauded when a male colleague says it. Yeah, and I know Terp listened to the audiobook, so she didn't have the the benefit of the uh, the the afterward um, of the of the written version. Um, so starting with that last one first, and then working backwards, um, the experience of uh, pre- presenting an idea and having it blown off until a male colleague presents it is not confined to aerospace engineering. Sadly, um, no, says lady in tech industry. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yeah. no, says, yeah, no, oh. says lady in theater. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I did talk to a ton of people and a number of the passages uh, that are coming out of the mouth of the astronauts are written by actual astronauts. Uh, Chell Lindgren and Katie Coleman were my astronaut uh, um, Mad Lib providers. I would literally send them <laughs> things that would say, and then the captain said, jargon, as he jargons the jargon. And they would fill in the gaps, um, which was incredibly helpful. Uh, Katie talked to me a great length about the challenges that she faced as a woman in the astronaut corps, uh, and specifically as one of the smallest astronauts that they had. So mm. it is, uh, there's a, just a lot of challenges. Uh, just for perspective, for people who aren't aware, um, there've been something like 500 people in space. Uh, 61 of them have been women. That's it. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and that's not like in America, that's like in all of history. Um, so if you are one of those 61, then when, I think actually it's 62 now. Um, but if you're just, if you're one of those, then if you complain about something, what happens is the people say, well, we haven't had this complaint before. Whereas if a guy complains about it, it's like, oh, okay, well, we'll fix that. But if if a woman complains about it, it's like, well, it's probably just because, you know, ladies can't really do this thing. And it goes back to 1963, right? Yeah. I mean, Valentina Tereshkova was in space in 1963. Mm-hmm. And then they just said, nah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they only, the, the Russians really only sent her up to, to scoop mm. the Americans on getting right. a woman into space to have the first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there were all sorts of, yeah, they had all sorts of, but how will they menstruate in space? And it's like, you know, we, we managed to do this on bed rest too, when there's not gravity to, it's like, it it's a, there's, okay, that's fine. It's okay, boys. Well, it's, and you know, it's funny because that, that exact comment reminds me so much about the issues that we do face in, in the technology industry, because so much of the technology has been created by the same cohort of people throughout time, throughout history, uh, you know, typically white guys. Um, and so some of the things that are happening now are reflective of that and, and issues that pop up like, Google, for example, labeling African-American people as gorillas on Google Photos because Ooh. there was nobody in the process to be like, that shouldn't happen. Or let's let's see what happens when we test this on black people, you know? Yeah. 
and so there's there's a, a lot of like being able to have that that diverse um, kind of having having a diverse workforce and having people with different perspectives being able to be part of the process of creating technology uh you know whether it be internet search or whether it be aerospace programs um it all it all comes out to be for the greater good when that happens absolutely there's a very small interesting thing from from puppetry which is uh in television puppetry the sets are built at a certain height generally and uh, and they tend to hire performers who are within a specific height range because Jim Henson mm. was a specific height. And mm. I think he was 6'4". Um, <laughs> so he's two. not even just average height guy. No, he's, he's, like, he's, yeah. he's over six feet tall. And so they tended to hire people who... So it was then very difficult for women to get roles. Because we were too short for the sets. And so when you're on a set where it's a standing set, you'll see women who have these ridiculous platform. Like, I mean, I I have performed on platforms. It was like a eight inch platform shoe. Wow. Uh, Yeah. What? Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. With, with one specific show that was not actually for television, that was for stage, but, you know, I was touring with the guy and we built the set to his height Mm -hmm. so that I have to adapt to it. We don't build it to my height. So he has to adapt to me. No, no. Well, we did want to go back into also the the Milltown question. Oh, right. The Milltown question. That was fascinating to me. Um, So... I didn't even realize that that was a real a real pharmaceutical until we started gathering questions for this. Yeah, a lot of people thought that I made that one up. Um, so Milltown. So there's a couple of things. One is that uh, Milltown was real. It was so popular that people were just taking it. Like there would be Milltown parties. Uh, there's a, a, there was a thing called a, a, a Miltini which is a martini with Milltown crushed into it. Wow. Okay. Like, that is a thing. Uh, you know, um, Milton Burrell joked that he was changing his name to Milltown. Uh, Milltown <laughs> that was in the book. Burrell. Yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was, that. I did not make that up. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of stuff that I really, like, nope, this is, this is, uh, this is a real thing. The, um, I'm trying to remember. I don't have my uh, my notes with me, but it's something like I think every like one in twenty Americans had tried Milltown. Um, and and the interesting thing about this historically was that it there was this very brief period where having an anxiety disorder was something that was openly discussed mm. and and treated. It's like, oh, you're anxious. Here's here's this medication that will help you with that. The problem is, Milltown is highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 like it's really, and it's not really a great thing for for treating anxiety. As it turns out, um, there's a number, you know, tons of side effects and problems. And because of this, and because of the prevalence of it, there was. Uh, then, then you get the backlash, and you get people saying, "Well, I don't, I don't want to be drugged," mm. and the pushback, and and then a lot more stigma comes out to be applied to these things than than existed even before that. I mean, 
people have never really, well, I shouldn't say people have never really been comfortable talking about it because during the Regency, people would talk about depression quite openly. Um, but, uh, but during this period, there's this brief moment where people do talk about anxiety and then, and then there's the pushback. I had no idea. That's, that's fascinating. I knew about yeah. tranquilizers being a thing. And I, and I knew like Rolling Stone's mother's little helper song sort of bleakly refers to medication. Yeah. Yeah. Mother's little helper is referring to Milltown. Okay. Oh. I didn't see. I just, I just knew it was referring to a pill. I figured it was a tranquilizer, but I had no idea it was Milltown. I didn't know yeah. what Milltown was. Yeah. That was mother's little helper. Um, hmm. There's a thing in the book uh, where Elma sees a sign that says, we have ice cream and Milltown. That's a real sign. Wow. (laughs) I would love to see like, we have, we have lorazepam and ice cream. (laughs) I mean, like, like times have definitely changed. You're, you're right though. You're absolutely right. Like the idea that it was so prevalent and then that backlash happened and then that stigma forms. I feel like that's something that keeps coming back over the course of human history, like sure. for different kinds of things. And yeah, yeah. that's, yeah, that's a, that's a perfect example. And hopefully now we're starting to destigmatize it again, I hope, but there's still that, that people don't like the idea of needing something to to feel normal or they don't want to be somehow like lesser um and yeah it's it's a problem it's a huge problem yeah i mean i was in my 40s i think it was over i think it was 45 um it wasn't that long ago where i was finally formally diagnosed with depression which in hindsight i have had my entire life mm-hmm. and 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 you know i it took basically me becoming not non-functional for me to go in and get medication. And, and then it was like, why, why did I wait so long? I, my Uh, heart hurts hearing you say that because I literally had the same exact experience this year where I was diagnosed with anxiety disorder and I started taking Lexapro. And for me, that was I said the same thing. I said the same exact thing. I was like, why did I do this to myself? Why did I wait (laughs) so long to not get like help? And my life has completely changed. Mm. And it's, it's like, I'm saying this because I want to help destigmatize it, you know, because I know there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't want to take a pill. I don't want to take a drug. And so reading this, I was reading this like right as I was like coming to this realization, like, oh my God, I wasted so much time. And reading about her process, I was like, just just go for it. Like, even though I didn't know Milltown was habit forming, it's a different story. Um, but you know, yeah. the fact that she was she let herself finally and and to be able to have the support of her husband and to be able to finally, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because we're not done with the book for most of the audience, but some of the revelations she learns later in the story um from some of her colleagues was very like comforting. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It was it was really nice to read that in a book. Yeah, and I that was that was a line that was difficult to walk. Like mm-hmm. I needed to be because because I did know that Milltown was uh, horrifically addictive, which her doctor would not have known, uh, and and she certainly wouldn't wouldn't have. I needed to make sure that I gave her behaviors in taking it so that I didn't have to deal with the side effects. Um, but at the same time, remove the stigma of taking it by having her, you know, accept that that getting help and getting medication was okay. Mm-hmm. So that was that was yeah, a, I, I, an interesting. I thing. don't. 
I don't mean to be a bandwagoner, but I, <laughs> I, I too, uh, I, I got diagnosed with cyclothymia, which is like a minor bipolar. And when in my late twenties, I took Depakote and I wouldn't say it's cured, but it brought it under control and I don't need to take that anymore, but I still had anxiety and I still get panic attacks. And my doctor found out just two years ago that it's a thyroid disorder. Nobody had thought to look. Until huh. she decided to look because my mom had had a thyroid disorder and taking levothyroxine absolutely balanced out the anxiety. It's not gone, but your description of her on Milltown where she's like, it's not gone, but it's muted. I'm like, yes, bingo. I know exactly that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Going on the the antidepressant, the so for me, I have, I get, uh, I guess, situationally triggered depression. Mm -hmm. So for the most part, mine is, I, I present even in the throes of it as a pretty happy person. Um, and, and if I have masking activities, I'm usually fine, but take the masking activities away and like, can't get out of bed, have mm -hmm. difficulties leaving the house, all of these things. And the medication just, the, the way I, I would describe it is that I, I would want to go like I, I knew that the thing I was going to was something I would enjoy. Um, and it was like there was a, a force field or a thing of saran wrap in between me and the, the, the door. And I would walk towards it and just kind of bounce off. I just couldn't, could not leave, mm -hmm. couldn't complete the action. And, mm -hmm. and all that, that the pill really did was um, it, it was like, it gave me a pencil. So when I walked up to the saran wrap, <laughs> it you know, it punctured the saran wrap and then it would tear. So I had a way to get through. It wasn't that the, 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 the depression just magically went away, right, right. but it, it was, um, it was, it was lessened. It was manageable. It manageable is still not the right word. It was, um, it was not debilitating. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is good. I like I like this conversation. Yeah. Oh yeah, we, we didn't. The only thing we didn't touch on out of these research questions was uh, oh, Kansas. Kansas. Yeah. We researched Kansas, and I also wanted to throw in as a person who grew up near St. Louis. Curious how Kansas got picked over St. Louis. I'm sure there's a very good reason. Yes, there there are two good reasons. Um, so one was that I looked at uh, what major city was the closest to being in the the very middle of the country. Mm -hmm. I, I looked at where the very middle of the country was. Um, and Kansas city was the closest to yeah. it. Makes sense. Uh, so that's, uh, and that was something that I decided that president Brannon would, would do when he was setting things up, um, mm -hmm. setting up the, the provisional government. And, uh, as far as research on Kansas, um, or Kansas City. Basically, I went to a Worldcon in Kansas City, um, wandered around, really liked it, and the rest mm -hmm. of it is uh, Google and the internet. <laughs> a wonderful research it's a source. Lovely yes. Place. yes, I've had some good times. Again. You mean you mean the Kansas City, Tom? Yeah, um, <laughs> and and I can get away with a lot because they. One of the reasons that I had them put it uh, initially, the capital in Kansas City, Kansas partly because closer to the middle, but also because it is less developed than Kansas City, Missouri. It is easy. It was easier to, to repurpose it for, for new things. Um, later they do actually annex just and 
carve it out as a a new, but that's farther down the timeline. (laughs) (laughs) We have some um, POV questions actually from the audience as well. Mm. Uh, Silvana was curious if you have more stories planned from the perspective of the elderly, like Lady Astronaut of Mars. And Terp Kristen wants to know if we'll get any stories in the male POV. Um, so planned is an interesting word. Um, there are stories that I want to tell from the older Elma, uh, whether or not I will actually get to tell them. I don't know. So, um, with, and I'm not going to tell you any of the details of it. I'll just say that I, uh, you know, I want to tell the story about when she stops being a pilot. Mm. Um, or not, not when she stops being a pilot, excuse me, when she stops, when she stops being a computer. Um, oh, okay. Uh, because when you get to, uh, when you get to Lady Astronaut of Mars, she's no longer a computer. She's just a pilot. So, mm. and I, I know what happens, um, to, to, to cause her to make that change. But so it's, it's a story that I, I would like to tell, um, you know, I, I would love to tell the story of her arriving at the, uh, the, the new planet. Um, there's, uh, so th- those are things that I am very interested in. Uh, in terms of whether or not there would be one from a uh, male POV, I um, initially thought Relentless Moon, which I'm working on right now, um, I initially thought about writing from Nathaniel's point of view. Uh, however, when you have marketed your books as lady astronaut novels, <laughs> it makes it perhaps inadvisable from a purely marketing standpoint to have the third one in the series be from a guy's point of view. A little wife imitating art there. It's a little it? bit. Um, so, uh, yeah. so I do actually, uh, I will probably do a short story um, from, from a, a male point POV, but I don't know that any of the novels will ever land there. And then uh, I, I thought the audiobooks, and I've read The Faded Sky as well, uh, are fantastically performed. Uh, Jenny wanted to know about the process. Uh, how do you keep track of the voices? How do you assign them? Which voice was the hardest? And who was your favorite? Mm. Um, so, so my process for recording my own books is slightly different than when I am recording it when I'm recording someone else's books, uh, when I'm recording someone else's books, I have to, I have to do this whole huge spreadsheet tracking thing. Um, and when I'm doing my own books, I, I know the characters. So I don't have to do that quite so much. The other thing about my books, and this is the biggest difference is that we record my books at an earlier stage in the process than I do with other people's for everybody else. We have to have, I have to have the print ready manuscript because I have to be word perfect. Mm. So they, they want no deviations between what I say and what mm-hmm. actually comes out in print. And that is also true for mine, but because I'm the author, I can change things. So when I record my own books, it gives me the opportunity to actually make changes to the manuscript. Uh, I catch things when I narrate that I do not catch when I uh, write it. I don't catch, I always do a read aloud pass. There are things that I don't catch when I read it aloud. There's something specific about the recording process because every time I screw up, we have to stop and back up and, and keep going again, which means that I am less likely to drop deeply into the story 
Uh, and and also when you say the same line multiple times, you're like, wait a second, that doesn't make mm. sense. <laughs> that's a really good process, actually. That's that's uh, yeah. kind of kind of neat to be able to do that and and say like, oh yeah, this line doesn't work the way I thought it would. Yeah, yeah that that was uh, that was a lot of fun. In terms of which voice was the hardest, um, it's actually the second book. Um, the second book. Uh, Faded Sky, I'm really like narrator Mary does not have any fondness for writer Mary because uh, writer Mary persists in writing in languages that narrator Mary does not speak. Hmm. Um, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why for plot reasons, I had a South African character in the second book, but um, that accent is just hard and it's, I just, oh, it's so hard. Um, <laughs> well, and you also have Yiddish and Hebrew yeah. so and the Yiddish <laughs> Portuguese. Yes. And- <laughs> yeah. And I, I had people record uh, all of those for me that I then listened to. Although the Yiddish and the Hebrew, I actually had a leg up on uh, weirdly because uh, back in my puppetry days, I, perf- I I had to learn to say the Kaddish. I performed, ah. um, I was in a, a, Jewish puppet play based uh, on the Dibbuk. Um, and uh, and I was initially cast, double cast as Leia, the, the ingenue, and the rabbi. Um, so I was playing an mm. old Jewish man. And so had to had to learn the the Kaddish and uh, several, you know, and and how to do pronunciations. The 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 romantic male lead's name was Hanan. Uh, so uh, excuse me, I just mispronounce the vowels in that while concentrating on the ch. Um, so, so that one I actually had a leg up on. Uh, Portuguese, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> had a couple of different people who recorded things very slowly for me. And then, um, and then I also had a wonderful Portuguese writer and, oh no, I've just blanked on his name. Mm. Um, he was so kind and took half an hour out of his day to sit down and coach me on the Portuguese so that I did not, so that it was passable. And then my engineer, and this is key. My engineer is Andrew Twiss. Uh, he, he's like, he's amazing. I record those lines much slower <laughs> than they are in the final. <laughs> he stitches together several takes where I nearly get it. Um, we recorded in chunks and then he stitches them together and, uh, and speeds me up just a titch so that I sound fluent uh-huh. and I am not even remotely. Ah, oh, the magic of technology. Once yeah, again, sure. I love technology so much. Do you have a, a voice that's your favorite to do, uh, of the character? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that and, and in, I think it may actually be, um, one of the minor characters, uh, there's a, uh, Randy Cleary, who's one of the, the original astronauts, um, has a form of a Tennessee accent mm. where, where it sounds, the way we describe it is it sounds like you're talking like way over there. And it's just, <laughs> this, I mean, it is the most, uh, I, I mean, my family, my people from Tennessee, and we don't, <laughs> we don't have this particular variety. But I had described it to my husband that it sounds like you're talking from way over there. <laughs> and we went to the grocery store and he's like, and I had just described it to him and walked in and this 
older Southern gentleman saw us and was like, can I help you? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, that's a real like, that's accent. One. I'm like, yep. That's, that's it. <laughs> Told you. Because Tennessee is such a long state. And they have to be able to talk. That is, you know, that yeah. is exactly right. I'm glad that you understand. <laughs> oh, Tom. <sighs> Tom, Tom, Tom. That was a Tomism right there you got to experience firsthand. <laughs> ah, yes. And I just, uh, Fabio Imbaretto is the, uh, the uh, Portuguese author who helped me with, um, with the, just taking the, the half hour out of his day to just walk me through all of those. That's fantastic. He, he said we got, we got to a point where it wasn't offensive. <laughs> All right. And then finally, our final question uh, comes again from Terp Kristen, who says, if you got the chance, would you go to space? Would you do a one-way yes. trip to Mars? Yes. Before the question is even done. Tell us. Uh, yes, I would go to space. I would not do a one-way mm. trip to Mars. Um, that is, uh, but uh, just because I have family that I care very much about. Um, but space? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in a heartbeat. Um, they're, they're like, do not pass go, do not collect hundred dollars. I would just, I would just go. Um, I've explained this to my husband who has no understanding of it. <laughs> I've had this conversation with my husband as well. Um, and I would, I would go, would you go? I would definitely go. Um, I don't, again, conditionally, I don't think I would do the one way trip. Actually, I think it depends on how old I am. Well, and who goes yeah. with you, right? Yeah. That's for Fair. me, yes. too. Yeah. yeah. Like, I wouldn't go yeah. now, yeah. but I would go in, like, 20 years or, like, 30 years. Yeah. But then, like, yeah, you know, like, I think I'd be okay then. I just want to, I, I still feel like I have some more Earth living to do and Earth yeah. things to yeah, see. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I want to make sure my heart doesn't fail. That's mm, my only mm-hmm, concern. Mm-hmm. I want to go. There's no doubt about that. That's a very specific yeah. concern. Hmm. It's a it's a real concern. Yeah. I mean, uh, there have been astronauts who've been grounded because um, they develop either developed or had something that was undiagnosed that turned up later mm. uh, mm-hmm. that that kept them from flying. Um, and it's one of the things that um, I briefly touch on. I kind of brush past in the first two books, but deal with in the the third one that I'm writing right now is that. The the program that they're talking about is basically a giant eugenics program, mm. not mm. not by design, but by by the fact that there are people who would not survive a launch. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of tr- conditions where you just would not survive a launch, and you know when you're trying to get everybody off the planet, even if you're like, okay, we're going to get everybody off the planet, and we actually have the resources to do that. There's some people who just won't survive it. And that, you know, that effectively creates a eugenics program. That's a coral. I often say my greatest fear is I'll be the last person to die, that they'll figure out, you know, the, the, the immortality cure the day after I pass away. And, and a corollary to that is that, you know, I'll be the, the, I'll be just too sick to be able to leave the earth once the colony ships take (laughs) off. Yeah. Oh man, one other thing to worry about. Cool. Yeah. That's great. My gift um, to you. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, let's let's just make a pact, the three of us, that we if we get the opportunity, we're going into space. Just yeah. do that thing. Yeah. I think I think I'm I, I think I'm I'm okay with that. Well, there's the the Japanese gazillionaire who yes. um, and I'm like, 
I I don't think that there's an application process, but but I did notice that one of the categories that he's planning on taking around the moon is a novelist. I'm like, hello. Uh, like volunteer <laughs> hand raised um well if there's any sort of like internet campaign you've got our you've got my backing absolutely well, thank you. <laughs> i'll try to help on that front at least um mary robinette where can people follow you and your work online the easiest thing is to hit my website which is my entire very long name mary com. Uh, from there, you can find me on Twitter or sign up for my newsletter. Uh, as a bonus with my newsletter, you get a story when you sign up and you also get another story on your birthday. And <gasps> I, when I am looking for beta readers, that's where I go. I'm going to do that. I didn't know we could do that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so, so much for coming on the show um, and for being back on the show. And yeah. uh, where I'm excited to read the rest of the series. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for making it part of the book club. That was so exciting when I saw that. I cannot even tell you. <laughs> well, I didn't even tell the origin story of how, like, I got my my. I got. Uh, I think you you may, might remember, like, a, a month or two ago, I tweeted at you because my friend had was reading it and she was so excited. And she's like, oh, I can't wait to read this book. I'm like, I'm really excited about it. And she showed it to me, and it was the calculating stars. And I was <laughs> right. like, Yes. I know her. <laughs> yeah, and so she actually lent me the copy that I read for the book club after she finished oh. it. So it was it was nice to get a get a recommendation and a reminder about how much we've wanted to read you on the book club. Um, and so it was just it was good. It was really great happenstance and, and synchronicity, as they say. Yes, please thank her for me. I will. And of course, thank you to all our patrons out there. Um, thank you so much to the folks who back our show. If you want to help us out, you can head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. You can also support the show by buying books. Uh, we have links to books that we get a little cut of. You get the book. The author gets their cut. Everybody's happy. You can find links to the books we talk about and some of our favorites, including Calculating Stars, at swordandlaser.com slash picks. Send us an email. Feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website, as always, is swordandlaser.com. And you can also join in on all the discussions over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And if you like the old uh, voicemail, you can do that too. 415 Seven Sword Six. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. 